One, two, one, two, three, four. Before we get started, we want to thank this month's sponsor. Introducing Gong.io, the number one conversation intelligence platform for sales. Gong helps you generate more revenue by having better sales conversations. It automatically captures and analyzes your team's conversations so you can transform your team into quota-shattering super sellers. Visit gong.io forward slash sales hacker to get in on the action and see it live. And now on with the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. Really excited about today's guest. Today, I've got Todd Capone, who is going to be a very famous and well-known to a lot of the people out there in the world fairly shortly. But let me give you his brief background. In his words, he's a nerd for all things sales philosophy, learning theory, and his new nerdery, decision science. He spent the last three and a half years building the revenue capacity of Chicago's Power Reviews from the ground up as their CRO, their chief revenue officer. Prior to that, leadership roles with three other tech companies, including Exact Target, who we all know, where he helped drive the organization to both an IPO and a $2.7 billion exit through the acquisition from Salesforce. He is a former American Business Stevie Award winner for uh, Vice President of Worldwide Sales and has also owned and operated a sales training company. His first book, The Transparency Sale, is going to be released in the fall, and it's got a lot of interesting content that we will talk about today. So welcome, Todd, to the show. Thanks, Sam. I'm uh, disappointed I'm not already famous, but uh, you're right. I'm I'm working (laughs) on it. This is all part of our master plan. (laughs) It's this, then Kanye will tweet about you, and then everybody will know who you are. That's right. I need a song. Exactly. Let's quickly, as we do, your, your baseball card so we can go over some just quick stats so we know why we should be listening to you. Your name is Todd Capone. What's your current or most recent title? So I was Chief Revenue Officer of Powell Reviews uh, here in Chicago for the last three and a half years. So, and uh, still helping out as I'm moving into this uh, transition phase, which is writing the book. Awesome. For those that are not in the know, what does Power Reviews do? Who, what are Power Reviews? So Power Reviews, you know, if you're on a website, a retailer or a brand, and you're looking at a product, you scroll down, you look at the ratings and reviews, that's Power Reviews in many cases. So we help primarily brands and retailers collect and display ratings and reviews and Q&A. So Jet.com, Crocs, you know, a lot of the big ones, that's kind of white-labeled Power Reviews running in the background. Are you guys competitors with, and I might have asked you this before, but like Yachtpo? or uh, Trustpilot? More Yachtpo. So the, the two primary competitors that we would run into would be Yachtpo and Bizarre Voice. Okay, awesome. Great. So what's the revenue range of Power Reviews? Power Reviews has got a really interesting story, but uh, right now they're running in that 25 million to 50 million ARR range. The Cliff Notes version is they were acquired by Bizarre Voice. The Department of Justice shut it down, forced the divestiture, and then I came in in 2014 to rebuild the sales force from a cold start uh, once the Department of Justice ruling cleared. That is a story I've not heard before in startup land. The DOJ came in and shut it down. Wow. What happened there? Post-merger. So what uh, essentially happened is uh, it was 2012. You know, there are two companies primarily in the space doing ratings and reviews. And uh, Bizarre Voice felt like it would make sense to blend the two. And uh, the Power Reviews customers apparently were upset about it, complained. It was under the line that the Department of Justice would normally look at. They filed suit. They won. And Matt Moog, who is the CEO of Power Reviews, restarted it in the summer of 2014 with wow. about 30 employees and seven reps. And uh, you know, over the last three and a half years, we've built that to about 150 employees. And my organization, as I'm on my way out now, has a little over 60 people. 
Wow. Well, congratulations on restarting the startup. That sounds incredibly difficult. So tell us, how long have you been in startup land? What's your background before Power Reviews? Well, I, uh, you know, back in the, the 1990s, uh, so dating myself here, I was doing the big companies. So I did Computer Associates, I did SAP. In 1999, uh, SAP, it, for anybody who's been around in the tech space from back then, there was this thing called the year 2000 crisis, where as the clock moved to January 1st, 2000, people thought that planes were going to fly out of the sky and nuclear bombs were going to go off and we're all going to die a fiery death. And as a result, companies were going to the SAPs and the oracles of the world and saying, rip out what I've got, put in a whole new infrastructure. So 1999, I did 872% of my number and I thought my shit didn't stink. Like, I am awesome. And I realized that it was like working at a drive-thru window. Like, companies were just pulling up and throwing money out at us. So a great situation to be in. It was great. But, you know, being uh, really all about money at the time, I saw all these startups that were coming, you know, kind of blasting out of garages. And these guys that like, there was a guy that I knew that was selling wooden pallets, came to SAP for like three months, went to a startup and then cashed out for a million bucks. And I was like, all right, I could outsell that dude in a minute. I'm going to go jump out and do the startup thing. And so in March of 2000 is when I started that. And that also happened to coincide with the bubble bursting. The top of the market in the tech bubble was March of 2000, the day I left. And it was all downhill from there. I did a fantastic job of running startups into the ground for a few years. <laughs> I feel like you're describing my cryptocurrency investment cycle. Just as everybody's out, I'm deciding now is the time to buy Ethereum. <laughs> exactly. Those bastards. And so 2000, the world is ending. I remember it well. Um, I yeah. know that in 99, I was my roommates out of college. We were all talking about what businesses we could start. And then by 2000, we were happy we worked in finance again. So Tom, what are the startups that you worked on after SAP? Well, I did. There was a couple. There was a company called ICG Commerce uh, back in 2000 that was just throwing money around. We were burning money at a pace that was unbelievable. It was headquartered in Philadelphia, a second floor of an office building where the first floor was an outback steakhouse. So we would get in at about seven in the morning and they would already be cooking those damn blooming onions and you could smell them in your conference room, but we were just cranking away. That just didn't work out. Um, the, the CEO felt like if we didn't become the largest company in the world, it was going to be a failure and it was a e-procurement technology. Like, all right, dude, <laughs> we're going to get a little bit over our head here. I ran to a company called uh, Recipio, which was in kind of the, the digital marketing space, just kind of starting out with, it was kind of like a qualitative feedback engine for retailers, which was pretty cool. But I did that for about a year and a half. And then after September 11th, there was just no money and no spending going on. And I found myself out on the street. I went to Hyperion, which is a big company again. And that was when I discovered that my true passion was for teaching and growing and learning. And um, I ended up Throwing caution to the wind, I took all of my money and bought a sales training company and and did that for a few years. So let's dive into that. And I think that should lead us to the book because I'm really interested in sort of the concepts behind the book. But some of that actually sounds a little bit like John Barrows, who I think he was working at Nasho and then decided to start his own sales training company. So what was the methodology? You know, you, you discovered this passion for sales. What were you training people on? Was it sort of Sandler stuff? Was it Miller Hyman? Were you using other people's ideas or did you have a specific innovation that you were bringing to the market? No, I wasn't that smart. So I bought a franchise. It's not a well-known franchise, and I'm not even sure if they're still around. Primarily, the focused areas were cold calling techniques. 
you know, teaching that, uh, you know, it's not about your opening. It's about how you respond and conversationally turn around negative responses. Taught that a lot. And then uh, we also had a forecasting methodology, which was really interesting, a way to visualize your pipeline so that not only were you very realistic in where deals were in their stages, but you could come in, visualize your pipeline and know how much prospecting you had to do that day versus how much do you need to be pushing through the back end of the funnel. But for me, you know, I didn't make much money doing it. Uh, it was a grind. I did it for three years. But I look back, I never got an MBA, but running my own business for those three years and then working with gosh, countless sales organizations and seeing what they do well and what they don't and becoming a, a total nerd for selling methodology... I feel like it was a, a 10x investment over if I would have gone and gotten my MBA. So it was a fantastic experience and it set the rest of my career on the path it's been. One of the benefits, I think, of being a consultant that I think some of us fail to appreciate sometimes, speaking from experience, is you get dropped into all these different companies and you get to see people that do things well and do things poorly. When you looked at all of these sales organizations and, and saw what were the common themes that they didn't do well, you know, and I'm sure some of them are pretty obvious, but any surprises? When I was doing that company, I, I wasn't selling or training tech companies, although there was a couple. I was training banks and recruiting firms, and it was it really spanned the whole gamut of what companies sell. And for me, that was really interesting because I'd been technology for the you know the ten years leading up to when I did that, and I've been tech ever since. It was really interesting when you think about people in a business development rep at a bank. You probably have a senior vice president title, so congratulations. And you're cold calling businesses to get them to switch the bank that they're using to the one that you're selling. And gosh, you talk about something that's crazy. None of these business owners are waking up in the morning saying, wow, you know what? My bank, they hold money in a really pretty uh, safe and I like it to be in this other safe. It, the difference is it was such a commodity. And some of these bankers are selling as though there's something really special about their smile and the glimmer in their eyes that's going to make these business owners suddenly just pull all their money out of one bank and move it to another. And we really had to work on programs that were about nurturing and establishing trust and providing succinct value in every interaction. Otherwise, it was just a wasted effort. And so there were companies like that, that commodity sale that I'm just glad I'm not in. How do you sell a commodity or how do you put position value in a short interaction? And what were some of the lessons that you brought to those organizations? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, every interaction that you have with a potential buyer, instead of having your sales hat on, and I'll talk about this when I talk about the book a little bit, that our brains are all wired to resist being sold to. And the second that we feel that somebody is trying to sell to us, the blocker goes up. And as a banker that's calling or anybody who's selling a commodity, we need to disarm that what I call the limbic filter, these buyers to want to build a relationship with you. And the way that you do that is essentially provide what I call succinct value, which is every interaction is not about you and your bank or whatever commodity that you're selling. It's about, hey, what can I do to make your life potential buyer a little bit better and do it in a brief way that allows you to get on with your day immediately. And so it was just building, hey, learn about their company, congratulate them when something good is going on, find different things that other companies like theirs are doing that you can send over, different press releases about their competitors, just be helpful. And eventually when the time comes, when they become in the market or they realize that their current situation is no longer sustainable, you're definitely going to be on the list of people they call. 
That's interesting because part of what it seems to be talking about is almost like a nurturing philosophy to the sales process. And did you find pushback from, I don't know, managers or, or even salespeople that were saying, Todd, that's all well and good, but that doesn't help me structure the interaction or drive enough urgency to close this deal on the timeline that I need to close it on? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. Being in a space like that, it's quite an investment. Like thinking about power reviews, for example. So why don't we switch back to tech um, since that's sure. probably more your audience. You know, power reviews, we collect and display ratings and reviews on retailer and brand websites. If you go to Bizarre Voices site, that's what they do. You go to Yapo's site, that's what they do. So how do you create an environment where when everybody looks exactly the same, that you're creating opportunities for yourself? There are numbers to it. There absolutely are. But you've got to make every one of those calls matter. And I could go on a a big tangent about how the brain works. But essentially, you're planting seeds in a buyer's brain every time that you're interacting with them. And if that feels like you're selling to them, uh, those seeds end up establishing a stronger filter to which they're not going to want to work with you. Let's move to the book. You've mentioned a few times, the brain is not programmed to be sold to, and probably there's some kind of fight or flight you know, mechanism or some kind of chemical that's emitted when we feel like we're being pressured into doing something we don't want to do, or maybe we just don't like being told to do anything. Yeah. And, and how do you disarm that? And then how does that relate to some of the themes in your book, which I guess is called the transparency sale. So I assume that the point is that try to be more transparent, but walk us through the philosophy. So at Power Reviews, obviously, we do a lot of studying for our clients to understand what works. And you know, these companies like Crocs, they want people to come to their site. They want to be able to provide all the information they need to make a purchase, and then they want them to purchase. One of the studies we did found that on a five scale, so you've got your star ratings, uh, one to five, that conversion, so sales, is at its highest when your star rating is between a four, two and a four, five. So what that means is that a product with a 4.2 score sells more than a product with a five. And what that also, when you think about taking that to the sales world, we have all been taught to sell as though our product is perfect. It's a five. And being taught to sell that way actually puts up the limbic filter, which means that your buyers, what are they doing? They're checking, they're asking you for references. They're back channeling you. They might be checking the Gartners and the Foresters of the world. They're trying to understand the full picture because that's what their brain requires. And in a transparency sale, you actually embrace and lead with your vulnerabilities from the first conversation. And when we've been doing it at Power Reviews, it is amazing what's happening, but it's speeding sales cycles. It's disarming buyers to where you're building faster, trusting relationships. And it's actually setting up the implementation. So post-sale, much more collaboration there because you've actually built in an understanding that you're not perfect. What's an example of like a pitch pre-transparency that would be like a more common pitch? And we can use power reviews since I think we all get the category. And then like, what's an example of how you modified it such that, to your point, because the one of the points that you made, which is really interesting, is the increased sales cycle. If maybe we can, by being more honest, we can shorten the sales cycle. I think we're all, we're all interested in that. So like, what's a before and after? Can I give you a crazy example first? Um, I love a crazy example. I'm sure you've been to an Ikea, right? I have. So, yeah. Uh, so and Ikea. I never go of my own accord because they're awful, horrible places. So Ikea, if you were selling against Ikea, wouldn't you think it would be incredibly easy? You have to go in, you find the product that you want, you have to write down or take a picture with your phone, the codes, you can find it yourself in the warehouse. You go downstairs, you get a cart with crappy wheels, you try to load this thing on the cart, 
You then roll it out to your car, which you have to come move to a designated spot. You load it into the car. You drive home with a few minor injuries. You get home. You open the box. There are literally no words on the instructions. It's all visuals that look like a child drew them. Yet, IKEA is the largest retailer in the world five years around, a furniture retailer. So why? Well, it's because they're proud of that. They make the point to every customer and consumer that, hey, listen, there's some things about your experience that are not going to be as good so that the other parts are going to be fantastic. And those parts are, you know, modern design, a cost that you can deal with, you know, not having to pay for shipping, like some of those types of things, they've come out and overtly said, this is what we're not good at. This is what we're good at. Now, yeah. a company like Power Reviews, one of the uh, examples is I went into, there was a, a big apparel retailer up in New York. You know, I ran a team, but I had a rep that was like, hey, this client wants to meet with somebody next week in New York. Can you come with? And I was like, hey, I'm in New York right now. Let me go see him. And so he set it up. I went in, I went and saw this guy uh, that afternoon. He brought a whole team in and he said, Todd, listen, I'm looking at you and I'm looking at your primary competitor. Tell me, and he was a total New York guy, like really aggressive. He's like, tell me why you're better. And my pitch was, hey, can I actually start with why we're not? And the guy kind of looked at me funny and I said, hey, listen, our competitor has been developing an ancillary solution to what are kind of our core ratings and reviews. They're, they're focused on this part that's called ad tech. And it's really interesting. There's a lot of companies that are seemingly liking uh, what they're working on. I got to be totally honest. It's not something that's even on a roadmap. And the guy looked at me and he was like, all right, well, that's not something that we're interested in anyway. I mean, we're focused on this area. I'm like, all right, well, we're making that sacrifice so we can be really good at our core. And here's what we do better. And once we did that, the guy's demeanor changed, the whole room changed. And at the end of the meeting, with about 10 minutes left, he kicked everybody out of his office. He pulled out a spreadsheet. I've never had a client do this. This is a VP of e-commerce. He pointed at the budget line that said exactly how much he had. So it's his whole budget. He points at the line. He's like, can you hit that number? And the deal was done in about three weeks when with a big apparel um, retailer like that, it would probably have taken three to six months. Wow. Uh, we just cut through the crap. He had made his decision by the end of that meeting, but just the way that I went about being as transparent as I possibly could and just laying our flaws out on the table to start with. So there was never a time where he felt like he was being sold to. That's a great example. That's one of the, apparently the keys, right? Lead with your, am I getting this right? That the first part is, and of course the book's not going to be available to the fall, but lead with your weaknesses. Is that the essence of it? Or are there more sort of pillars of the transparency sale that we should be mindful of? Well, yeah, there are. That first one, it, the way that I put it in the book is that you think about selling as though you're a 4.2 to a 4.5 and stop selling as though you're a 5. And I'll talk about different techniques that you can use to figure out what are the right vulnerabilities that you can lead with. So it's not a young sales rep starting the conversation with, hey, this is why we suck. Good. The, uh, yes, exactly. Then the, uh, the other two concepts that I've learned an awful lot in studying for like, why? Why does the brain act this way? One of the things that has been talked about so often in neuroscience, and it's, it's talked about in marketing a lot, but not as much in sales, is that it's been confirmed that we make decisions based on feelings and then justify them based on logic. And it's 100% of the time, to the point where I found a research study about a, a guy who had a tumor on his feeling center, which is that limbic part of your brain. When they removed it, they did some damage to the connection. And the guy literally lost his ability to feel and have emotions. And what ended up happening 
He got divorced. He lost his job. He literally couldn't decide to get out of bed in the morning. Like getting out of bed, he'd just he'd sit there for two hours until somebody dragged him out of bed. The point there is that as sales professionals, we've always been taught to sell focused on logic. Hey, here's the ROI. Here's the features. Here's the benefits. But are we inspiring feelings and emotion and painting a picture for the client? Because that is what drives the sale. It's the feeling. And in the end, they'll back it up with the logic. So that's, that's point number two. And then point number three, again, another neuroscience piece here, but what all this research has also shown, and you've probably heard about this, but again, not really made its way into selling foundations yet, but 95% of all the decisions that you make in a day are made subconsciously. Meaning as somebody's listening to this podcast right now, after every sentence, they're making a decision subconsciously as to whether or not they want to stop it and go do something else or keep listening. And we don't think about that when we're putting together our emails, when we're pitching, when we're giving presentations, and even when we're negotiating. And I view those three things, that the transparency and that decision science is a real opportunity to have sales professionals or anybody who influences, whether it's recruiters, whether it's your CFO that has to pitch to a board to use all of that data and all that science that I've dumbed down to an eighth grade level, essentially, for good, not evil. So how do we do that? And some of this is reminding me, I'm sure if you're pronounced it Cialdini or Cialdini, but anyway, Robert Cialdini in that that famous book, Influence. But how do we take advantage of the emotional undercurrents of a sales cycle and also the fact that the subconscious is really the person or the thing that is driving decision-making? Give us some ideas about how to do that. Yeah. So, well, the subconscious part is really interesting. The fact that we're, you know, a buyer, our goal in a sales cycle is to get that buyer to make one decision at the end, which is to buy whatever we're selling. But they're making literally thousands of micro decisions along the journey as to whether they'll continue down the path with you. So, when you think about every email interaction, like what are the types of things that you're doing to make somebody feel in those emails, feel good about themselves, feel related? You know, one of the the concepts that you think about is um, an an example that I talk about is imagine that you're with a buddy and you're in a town you've never been in. You're walking down the street and you see two restaurants. There's one on the left and the one on the right, and you're hungry. So two of you are deciding where you're going to go. The one on the left looks pretty empty. The one on the right has a couple of people out in front. Like, which one do you go to? I go to the one with a couple of people out in front. Right. And why? Because there's people there. There's no reason. You didn't read Yelp reviews. Nobody told you about it. It's literally a couple of people out in front. And that makes no sense subconsciously, right? There is the element of making a, a potential buyer feel like there's volume, there's people there. There's little techniques like that that you can use to, you know, subconsciously drive a buyer to think differently about your solution. Just that as an example. Would an example be like, if I'm emailing with a buyer and I say, and they say, can you meet at 11 a.m.? Can we do the call at 11? And I say, actually, I've got another client call at 11, but I can do 1230. Would that be an example? Or what's a specific example that a a rep listening to this can take away? That's a perfect example. My mother had uh, knee surgery scheduled for just before Thanksgiving. And the day before they realized she hadn't had an EKG done. So they canceled the surgery. My mom was like, hey, I'll get the EKG done this afternoon. Can we do the surgery the next day? And the doctor said, nope, we've got to wait four weeks. That's the next opening. And she was angry, but I was excited because if the guy said, well, when do you want to come in? I got nothing going on. It tells you that he's probably not very good. 
that is a really good example. So that when we're leading with our prospecting efforts, specifying in our prospecting when you're available to meet. The minute that I hear a sales rep say, hey, uh, when can you meet? I, I'm open all week next week. Like that's like the doctor example that tells you that, wow, nobody else is talking to you. Uh, but if you're very specific around your ask around the time and date, hey, let's meet Wednesday at 10 o'clock. Uh, it does subconsciously create that perception that you're in demand. Wow, that's very useful. When you think about the best way to deploy, is it redesigning the sales cycle? Like, is there a methodology that you'd hope that, you know, VP of sales listening would employ to redo the sales process? Or is it really training that accelerates or augments the existing sales methodology? Hey, you continue to do spin or value-based selling if you want, but these are tactics and strategies. This is a philosophy that's going to essentially improve win rates through the course of the conversation. Yeah, it's definitely the latter. When you talk about the evolution of sales, and I listened to your podcast number two with Steve Denton, and he talked about how selling has changed. This really isn't a methodology shift. If you think about what he talked about and what I'm sure all salespeople are aware of is because there's so much information available to buyers, they don't need you like they did before. So you had to change your language and your approach into what is called insight selling or formalized with the challenger sale. But now buyers have tons of information about why you're good and why you're not. It's very easy for them to find out your flaws. And when you think about it, these buyers, they're going to look for your flaws. And in many cases, they're going to find them and not come back to you. You know, it freaks me out when I look at a pipeline and see the next step is I'm chasing this guy or I haven't heard from her for a while or they've gone silent. A lot of it is because they've gone out and they've taken a look and found out why you're not very good and the momentum has fallen by the wayside. If you're the one that's presenting those flaws, their brain actually doesn't drive them to go look elsewhere as much. And that's why you can speed sales cycles because they stay with you. The same exact thing happens on websites. One of our clients at Power Reviews uh, was a bookseller that didn't have ratings and reviews on their site. And what we found in looking at their analytic data is that people were looking at a book. So let's say it's the transparency sale, whenever it comes out, and finding that there's no reviews, we could actually see they were going to Amazon. And uh, we were making the assumption that they, just from looking at the IP addresses, that they were not coming back because they were finding what they needed over there and then making the purchase there. Leading and being transparent and selling as though you're a 4.2 to a 4.5 versus a 5 is going to keep your buyer with you, keep that limbic filter disarmed, and make them trust you. And I promise you that sales cycles are going to speed up. And that's a philosophical change. Yeah, I mean, I guess the immediate, but there's an answer to this question, the immediate red flag or not a red flag, but the thought that comes to mind is, well, what if the weakness is, is the central value proposition of the product? But I guess in that case, you're going to have to find a new job. So what I found is if you go through an exercise and you understand who your competitors are and where they're better than you, you know, one of the things that leading with your transparency is going to help with is help you qualify deals better and save you an awful lot of time. Now, imagine if I led with that ad tech example at that retailer up in New York and ad tech was the most important thing that they cared about at that time. How was I going to sell around it if that's nowhere on our roadmap? Not something that we support in any way. Eventually, I'm going to lose that deal. Eventually, I need to be focusing on the deals that are really in our core and our sweet spot. And they're going to figure that out. So either I need to have a really good answer for that, or I need to go focus on a different type of client. And I think that that's part of this core here is you don't necessarily have to, if there's things that they're better than you at, you know, one of the things that you can do as an exercise before you go in to talk to a client is figure out like which are the, the differentiators that aren't going to matter as much to them. 
And you can lead with those because, again, it, it still serves the purpose of making them feel like you're not selling to them and you're a, a trusted partner here that's trying to be transparent and making sure that you're illuminating some things that they might care about that somebody else might be better at. Yeah, I like it a lot. I'm actually thinking about it in the context of, you know, the company where I'm working right now, Behavox. One of the things that it sort of brings me back to, which is a point that I emphasize a lot, is just the incredible importance of qualification and discovery and how much of the sale is won or lost at the beginning of the sales process. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that uh, I laugh about is that when I hear people still using BANT as their qualification, I think that that time has kind of come and gone. And that in training and some of the fundamental things that I see, we don't spend as much time on qualification skills as maybe we should. I think this transparent approach, it should help. We found at Power Reviews is trying this thing out that it was helping us to vet deals and build stronger advocates faster. But yeah, it's a really good point. Is your point that BANT is necessary but not sufficient or that it's not relevant at all? You know, when I think about ways of figuring out whether the deal is worthwhile or not, in an enterprise sale, there's a lot more to it. And a lot of it relates to the consensus that we have to build within the people that are essentially below the power line that are going to influence the people that are making the decision. But I do find that figuring out, okay, do these people know how much money it's going to cost and who's going to be making the decision and when are they going to be making it? I still find that helpful, but I'm always happy to change. Is there a better <laughs> qualification methodology that you have? Or? Well, all right, get ready for the cheese. Mine's called is taking the customer's temp. Um, and so T-E-M-P is the acronym. Okay. And um, you know, the first T, is there a trigger in the organization that makes them understand that their status quo is no longer sustainable? It's, you know, like what used to be called a compelling event. But are we able to identify whether or not the buyer feels the exact same way as us? That trigger is an important thing because we lose, what, 80% of our deals to the status quo. The E is engagement. With our reps, the one thing that I'm... Rep has never heard me yell at anybody. Uh, it's not my approach, but they know that if there isn't a next step with the specific date and time that's shown on the buyer's calendar too, they're not engaged. And what I mean by that is, you know, evidence of an engaged customer is shown by their willingness to make more time for you and put you in their calendar. You know, similar to you're going to go to the dentist in 10 days. Like, what do you start doing now? Probably start flossing, right? What we find with buyers is if it's in their calendar, they're going to be prepared for it. And they've shown that they're engaged through that willingness to put you in their calendar. Uh, the, the M is for mobilizer, which is a corporate executive board lingo for, do, have we identified the person in the organization that can mobilize change in the organization? So it's not that we're just dealing with an executive, but is, is it somebody that is going to make things happen? And there's techniques for identifying that. And then the P, is there a plan? Meaning, you know, it's kind of the, the timing from Bant. But do we understand if their status quo is no longer sustainable, by when? And if we started to work backwards with them, do we know uh, when a decision is going to be made? And so the temp again is, is there a trigger? Are they engaged? Do we have a mobilizer? And have we identified a plan with timing that's going to get us to a decision? Those are the four that I've used. You know, the reason that Bant for me has not been great is the budget is sometimes challenging, especially in a challenger sale type of era. A lot of times, if we're dealing with a true mobilizer in an organization, they're going to go find budget. If we find out they don't have budget, that shouldn't disqualify the deal. 
if there's an enough of a compelling trigger in the organization that says that their status quo isn't sustainable. Yeah. Um, and then the, the timing is a lot of times off too. I can't tell you how many deals where the initial timing that we discussed in no way reflects reality. That's certainly true. The budget thing is a super interesting question to your point. One of the things I use it for is just to figure out, do they know how to buy software in general? Because I've been surprised at the number of enterprise sales conversations I've been in where it's a group of business users. They ostensibly, they sort of theoretically have budget, but they've actually never purchased anything before. And so figuring out, and that's what we need a mobilizer for, helping them understand how to buy and how to go get budget if they don't have it is often a task that I need to do for them to help them through the process. Yeah, I mean, I think that that plan elements, you know, plan is different than timing in that if you're really good and you're transparent, uh, one of the ways that you can disarm the, the buying feeling, that kind of limbic filter that I talk about, is if you're able to go in and say, hey, listen, it, this is common. Like, I'm probably not teaching anybody they, anything they don't know. But to go through a sequence of events that's mutual with the buyer and say, hey, listen, we've worked with a lot of companies like yours. Here's some of the curveballs that are likely to happen. And lay it out into a sequence of events or a plan and have them agree with you. And if you're teaching them about the pitfalls in their organization that they don't know they're going to face because you've faced them at five other companies, that's really valuable and beneficial. And oh, you end up with a timeline that's a lot more accurate and easy to forecast. That speaks back to your broader point of transparency, which is something I try to employ, which is, hey, these are the five things that are going to happen. These are the clauses in your MSA that we're going to have an issue with. And this is the one we really care about. And these are the ones that we don't care about. And by the way, you know, one of the things I've been doing, I'd be curious on your thoughts on it, is I, I start giving a discounting schedule. I say, like, we're going to send it to procurement. The procurement person's job is to get the price lower. We're happy to lower the price. Here's the ways that we lower the price. And Typically for me, it's a certainty of closure or timeline. So, hey, if we can hit these deadlines, we can lower the price. And also, if you're willing to be referenceable or give us case studies, we might be able to lower the price as well. But just so that I'm not, it doesn't feel like I'm negotiating with sort of like a, a trick behind my back, but I'm saying, yep, I understand you want a lower price. Here's how to get it. You are going to love uh, the chapter on transparent negotiation. Based on what <laughs> but that's essentially it. I mean, a lot of times we've been taught to negotiate as though we're in a Texas Hold'em tournament. And we got to hide our towels and wear sunglasses and not like not twitch. And, you know, transparent negotiation is exactly what you said. It's going in, like if you're selling SaaS, it's going in and saying, hey, listen, here's the four things that we can pay you for in the form of a discount. Uh, we'll pay you for committing to more volume, to paying faster, to committing longer, and to helping me forecast. And you can roll your own deal. That's what transparent negotiation is. And if you're working that in the first time you talk about pricing when you deliver the proposal, and at the time you actually get down to negotiating, it's flawless. You'll get bigger deals, you'll get better forecastable deals, you'll get longer commitments, and you'll probably get paid faster. Yeah, I love it. It's good stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, the reason I do it is because I'm so fucking impatient. I don't want the back and forth of uh, having something be obscured and then debating with myself whether to reveal it. I'd rather just say, here's everything that I know about myself and about you. And like, let's start from there. So, and again, a lot of it's just driven. I just want to get the deal done quicker. So, you know, if there's going to be an issue, I'd rather find out about it sooner rather than later. Well, yeah. I mean, we just did a big renewal with one of our apparel manufacturers at Power Reviews. And I literally laid that out for him and had him roll his own renewal uh, because he came after me and said, Todd, space is commoditizing. We need 20% off. Okay. Here's how you get 20% off, you know, commit longer, pay faster. And like, here's the percentages that align to those. 
And he said, all right, I'll do 10% off and I'll commit for three years. Isn't it amazing when you give people a framework and it just structures the whole conversation? The same thing happened to me recently where they said, well, we want to lower price. Happy to do that. If you sign by May 1st, I can give you X percent off. They, and now they are the ones emailing me saying, hey, we really got to get this done to hit that May 1st deadline. I said, well, yeah, well, I'll tell you, there's two. I'll leave you with two last tips there. One is reps since the beginning of time have had deadlines on proposals. And most of the time, buyers don't understand why. And so the minute that I taught our sales reps and, and I've been doing it to explain why that date matters, that, hey, listen, Mr. or Mrs. Buyer, there's value to our organization in us being able to forecast our business. So this proposal expires the end of May and there's 5% in there for you because there's value to us. So we're paying you in the form of a discount to get this done by the end of May. And just that language changes it so that when the end of May comes up and they say, oh, you know what? our buyer is on a freaking boat in Atlantis and like there's no cell phone signal and he's probably going to get swallowed into the ocean. Can we sign this in June and hold the price? You can tell them, I don't know. Remember what we talked about? End of May, here's why. And it becomes a much better conversation than just saying no or just saying yes and having the deal slide to June automatically. 100% in agreement. Very, very useful. By the way, it reminds me of, I don't know if it's Kahneman or if it's Cialdini, but it's that word because. It's when you explain because they've done all these psychological studies and you know you can say, I think the example was in one of the books was, can I cut in line? Nobody said yes. And then can I cut in line because this is the reason why, because I'm really in a hurry, which is by the way, just a way of saying, can I cut in line? But the compliance, you know, the willingness of people to give you what you want when you just provide an explanation, it triggers something in the brain that, that makes them more amenable, as we say. Yeah, Cialdini's stuff is great. His newer one, Persuasion, is a staple for me. It's uh, fantastic. And it's one of the things that got me really excited about neuroscience, which I don't know if the kind of the world isn't paying enough attention to it, but the advances they're making in understanding how the brain works are incredible. And I think it's an opportunity for salespeople. Like if you know how the brain works and how the brain makes decisions, shouldn't you know that as a salesperson? Shouldn't you try to take advantage of that? And that's what I'm trying to do. And I know Cialdini and a lot of these guys have been doing it more focused on marketing, but there's a lot in sales that we could learn about brain function and decision science that are going to help us aid the buyer in making better decisions, make faster decisions, make decisions they can be proud of. And that, that's what I'm trying to bring. Uh, the, the funny thing is like, I've been reading all these like pure neuroscience books and by the way, there's so many advancements happening in like how we can we treat autism? How can we t treat Alzheimer's? They're finding all of these little things. Like I think the next 20 years are going to be fascinating around that. But they speak at such a doctoral level that in the book, what I'm trying to do is take it down to like an eighth grade level that even I can understand and make it as useful as I can for salespeople. If it's as good as it sounds like it's going to be, then I will definitely buy a copy. I will download it to my Kindle and my e-reading device. Nice. Um, Thank you. You'll, you'll be the one. Yeah, exactly. You're the one listener <laughs> of my podcast and I'm the one reader of your book. It's, it's got to be Perfect. a pyramid scheme we can deploy here. <laughs> Let's pay it forward a little bit. We, we're sort of at, you know, a few more minutes uh, in the interview and I'd love to, it's always really interesting, especially with people that have been doing it for a little while to hear who their influences are and who are the people that inspire them across the range of uh, personalities that are in startup land. So any, um, you know, VPs of sales or CROs or sort of sales leaders that, particularly because I'm in New York, I'm a big New York guy. I know a lot of people in New York. I don't know that many people in Chicago. So who should we know about from the world of sales and selling that's been an influence on you? 
Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's Chicago, but I think you'd be shocked at the, the ecosystem of tech that's blossoming in Indianapolis of all places, you know, which is where Exact Target was founded and, and exploded with growth and ended up with that fantastic exit. You know, I know he's not a, a CRO, but he was the CEO and the uh, co-founder, Scott Dorsey. That guy, you know, he, he really came with a sales first type of approach to building an organization. And he's one of those guys that even when he's mad, he's smiling. So that the culture that he oozed from the top, I think is just fantastic. And then he hired a guy like Andy Kofoid. So Andy Kofoid was the senior vice president of sales. And now he's the chief operating officer overseeing the entire marketing cloud uh, for Salesforce. Wow. But those two guys, they just epitomized how I would want to model my approach, which is encouragement. How do you get better results out of people by making them better at what they do and making them like build within themselves this thirst for learning and getting better. And so those two guys have been fantastic. I've, man, I've worked with lots of them over the years. You know, DJ Paoni, who is now the president of SAP North America, is a guy that uh, he and I started together back at uh, CA and SAP back in the 1990s. And is just a quality human being that just does things the right way. Um, so there's a lot of stars in Chicago and uh, the overall Midwest. Well, Indianapolis was not a word I expected to hear on this podcast. And so you've <laughs> already done something unexpected. What about on the personal side, any books that you're reading that you think we should know about? You know, you mentioned a few to me about neuroscience. If we wanted to sort of get started there, what are the one or two introductory, uh, you know, references that we should be reading? Well, it's funny you ask that. Writing a book. So if anybody ever who's listening to this is thinking about writing a book, reach out to me. I, I've learned so much in this process. One of the funny things that I just found is that there's this place and it's called the library and they have free books that you can borrow. That doesn't um, make any sense. How does the library stay in business? <laughs> exactly. It's like, how does the bottled water industry stay in business? I can just get it from my tap. I've had to spend a lot of time because doing the research for this book, it's quite an effort. At any one time, I've got eight books checked out at a time. You know, right now, a lot of what I'm reading and, and focusing on is the, uh, the neuroscience stuff. And man, there's some really, really good ones. Like, you know, Cialdini and some of those guys around brain science are really interesting. There's a book called Brainfluence by Roger Dooley. And again, it's marketing focused, but he has like a hundred little tips around if you know how the brain works, uh, you can modify your marketing efforts to be better at what you do. And there's some interesting kind of sales takeaways from that one. You know, there, there's a bunch of podcasts I listen to. There, there's two neuroscience books that I've read lately that are incredibly interesting. I might be the only guy that would think so though. But um, there's this book called Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio. And it, it talks about those different regions in the brain and what happens when you have damage in different regions of the brain and tell stories about how people's lives have changed based on them. And it is incredibly interesting to hear stories like uh, there's, there's one of this guy, Phineas Gage, who uh, was famous. building a rail Phineas park. Gage is famous. He's got the thing through his head, the spike. Exactly. Damasio talks about that story about what happened in his life as a result of the limbic, kind of the midbrain being taken out with the post. He lived so, like for a long time after. I mean, it was a crazy story. Yeah, and he was uh, actually joined the circus for a little while and would show people the pipe and show people the hole in his head. Damn. Uh, but another guy that couldn't make a decision and his whole life fell apart after it happened. That one's super interesting. There's another one called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And it, the, the title sounds crazy, but it's again, it's a neuroscience one around different brain issues that have... Is that Oliver Sacks? if I'm not mistaken? It is, yes. Yeah. Yep. He just passed yes. away. Great writer. 
Oh, I, I didn't know that. That's sad to hear, but uh, super <laughs> awesome. interesting stuff. It's okay. We Neither of us knew him. It's all right. We wish him the best. <laughs> That's right. Rest in peace. <laughs> exactly. Well, Todd, listen, this has been fantastic. I'm super, super excited for the transparency sale. I'm frankly quite interested in thinking about and ruminating on temp, which is trigger engagement. What's the M? Uh, finding the mobilizer. Mobilizer. And then P is plan. The plan. So temp. I'm actually going to try thinking about using that because I do believe so strongly in, in some of those concepts. And I'm excited for your book and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to get to know you more. So thanks so much. If folks want to get in touch with you, how do you prefer it? You know, anytime on, uh, it's transparencysale.com, written just how it sounds. If you want to sign up for updates, I promise I'm not a spammer. I don't have a newsletter, but you can go. It's really easy to find. And then I've got some other resources on there, but all my contact information is on uh, transparencysale.com. Awesome. We will get in touch that way. Thank you so much for joining the Sales Hacker Podcast. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right, Sam. That was fun. Hey, everybody. It's Sam's Corner. Another great conversation this time with Todd Capone, who used to be CRO at Power Reviews. Now he's writing his own book. The transparency sale sounds quite good. And there's a bunch of little interesting tidbits that I picked up on. One of them was this concept that you need to or can create almost the illusion or the appearance of scarcity. And so one of the ways that Todd and I talked about doing that was not just telling a prospect that, hey, my calendar is wide open. I can do anytime between 8.30 a.m. and 7 p.m., but really managing your calendar as if, even if you're not busy, giving the appearance of being busy with other client conversations to imply and to impress upon the prospect that there are other people that are interested in the product that you're selling. So that may be a specific proposal of a time saying, hey, I'm free at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. and I'm also free at 3 p.m. if you want to call me then. Uh, Or it may be some other mechanism to convey that your time is valuable and scarce and that's because it's driven by clients. Now, one of the things I will say is please don't make scarcity a function of your personal vacation schedule. I've often canceled meetings with reps when I wanted to get a demo or I actually wanted to have a more substantive negotiation. And they say, well, I'm actually going to be out of town the next four days. Can we do it next Tuesday? And uh, at that point, I typically request a new rep or cancel the conversation altogether. That's because A, I'm a little bit of a dick and B, because I want the conversation to be about the prospect and me in that case, and not about uh, somebody's personal vacation schedule. Now, if you are somebody that I've done that to, I apologize in advance, but you know, the lesson from my perspective is make it about the prospect while still creating the illusion of scarcity if the reality is not quite there yet, but make it about the product and the business, not about uh, when you need to get to the gym or how often you need to work out or when you need to go on vacation or whether you and your family are going to be in the Palmas or anything like that. And I'm sorry if I've pissed you off by using specific examples from your real life. This has been Sam's Corner and I'll talk to you soon. To check out the show notes, see upcoming guests, and play more episodes from our incredible lineup of sales leaders, visit saleshacker.com slash podcast. You can also find the Sales Hacking Podcast on iTunes or Google Play or anywhere that you consume your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. Special thanks again to this month's sponsors at Gong. See more at gong.io forward slash sales hacker. And finally, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash and slash Sam F. Jacobs. See you next time.